0: Hello again. We have a guest preacher this morning. As many of you know, Peter, our rector, is on sabbatical. And in the summer, we typically have some guest preachers anyway. So really excited to welcome Jonathan Warren Pagan. Many of you know Jonathan. He has preached with us before. He is a priest in the ACNA and worships regularly at Resurrection, which is in South Austin. So we're really excited to have Jonathan and his family here with us this morning. Thank you. There we go. Good morning, Church of the Cross. Good morning. Welcome to everybody. Greetings to all of you from all of us Resurrection Anglican, as uh, Mother Kimberly mentioned, Tish and I worship. Um, It is a really heavy and bleak week for both our nation and for the church this week. This morning, there are 19 families. I'm asking you to stand, so don't sit down just yet. There are 19 families mourning children. They will not see again until the resurrection today. There are two other families that are mourning parents that will never be seen again until the resurrection. And our hearts need to break with these victims and for the devastation that has been wreaked upon this community. And then there's this other landmine that's just exploded within the Southern Baptist Church this week as the Guidepost report detailing the dark details of sexual abuse has just been released. It is worse than anybody could have imagined, actually. And our hearts need to break there, too, with victims and with the advocates who have tried for decades to get the leadership of that church to pay attention to the systems that are allowing abusers to go from church to church and continue to abuse without being detected. So we cannot begin to look at this passage from Philippians this morning, which in many ways... Deserves to be called the charter of our faith without humbling ourselves before God and crying out to Him in all honesty that although we profess that there is not one thing that has happened this week or in any week that has shaken the throne of God, that is not a truth that feels real to us today. And we need to be honest. We need to, if we're paying attention, we've been shaken to our core and disabused of our illusion of strength and control over our circumstances, over our reality. We need to cry out to him that although we are his church and the hope of the world in America, we are not strong. We are not confident to face these tragedies. Rather, we are weak and crumbling. We need to cry out that we stand under just judgment for our many failures and our compromises and injustices, and that we need revival. We need renewal as this church. We need to be cleansed from all unrighteousness so that with clarity and courage, we can stand in solidarity with victims and work for a more just society. Amen? In our prayer book, there's this beautiful petition. If you want to find it later, it's number 43 in the occasional prayers and thanksgivings. It's called For Social Justice. Our church is committed to seeing justice enacted in our society and in our own church. So would you continue to stand with me as we pray this prayer? Almighty God, you created us in your own image. Grant us grace to contend fearlessly against evil and to make no peace with oppression. And help us to use our freedom rightly in the establishment of justice in our communities and among the nations to the glory of your holy name. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Now you may be seated. Y'all may have to bear with me a little bit. My allergies are acting up, so there may be a lot of coughing, so I apologize for that in advance. We want to acknowledge this morning our anxiety and our de- sinfulness, our, our dependence, our utter helplessness before the depths of evil that are, that are confronting us right now. Um, because we want to do that because we want to humble ourselves to take away all of our distractions, to cleanse our imaginations and our pride so that we are able to hear the truth about who Christ is and about the utter invincibility of his kingdom and the unshakable certainty of his final victory. And we want that to be news to us, right? If we think we're in control, it's not news. And it's certainly not good news, and we need to be in that posture of humility to be able to hear this passage afresh. This passage is, is, rings out this truth like peals from a great gong. This passage is a shout loud enough to wake the most sound sleeper if we're listening to it. This passage is one in which Paul is naming the reality of who Christ is and what he has done for us and what we therefore owe each other in the body of Christ more clearly than almost anywhere else in his letters. The Christ hymn that is at the heart of this passage is one of the clearest places in all of Scripture where Christ is called the God of Israel. Not only does Paul tell us that Christ in his very nature is God and that before all things, before the creation itself, he possessed equality with God. At the climax of this passage in verses 9 through 11, Paul also quotes Isaiah 45, 23, which says that before the God of Israel, every knee will bow, By me, every tongue will proclaim that in the Lord alone are deliverance and strength. And then Paul says, that passage in Isaiah, that's about Jesus. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Whatever else is happening in your world this week, whatever trouble you are coming into this room with today, Everything that's shaking the foundations of the world order today, I want you to sit with this fact, people. Jesus Christ is Lord yesterday, today, and forever. What the Son of God did, humbling himself, making himself nothing, pouring himself out is a world historical event in a way that nothing else ever has been or ever could be. At the end of the first century AD, there was a bishop in a small city in what is now Turkey named Polycarp. Do we have that slide? Is that a thing we could do? Oh, yeah. There we go. That's my man, Polycarp, right there. Polycarp had been a Christian for his entire life, and at the ripe old age of 89, he was martyred for his faith by a Roman proconsul for refusing to curse Christ. Now, imagine with me for a moment the Roman crowds that watched Polycarp die. It was remarkable the defiance and the courage that he displayed against the proconsul's judgment, exposed to the shame and the indignity of being booed by the crowds and intimidated by them. But all that did was make it all the more exquisite to watch him ground into powder by the very efficient execution machinery of the Roman Empire. Nobody in that crowd would say of Polycarp that this man served a kingdom more powerful than that of the Romans. And yet... Where are the Romans now, my friends? Have you ever met anybody conversing in Latin recently? I don't know, maybe some Benedictine monks, but that's it. That kingdom with all its pomp and splendor and riches and eternal glory, it's gone. Like the grass withers and the flower fades. Who has the glory now? And who do we remember? We don't remember the name of that proconsul. We remember Polycarp who served and serves now King Jesus because Polycarp, even now though dead, is alive in Jesus. And just as sure as the sun rises, he will rise and rule together with him forever. Amen? The scribe who wrote down the story of Polycarp's martyrdom, his name was Gaius. And he says he got this account from one of Polycarp's disciples, another famous early bishop named Irenaeus. And he appends this little postscript to the account, which gives a date to the events in question. He says, Polycarp was, a, was apprehended by Herodes when Philip of Tralles was high priest in the proconsulship of Statius Quadratus, but while the eternal King Jesus was reigning forever and ever to whom be the glory, honor, greatness, and eternal throne from generation to generation. Amen. To me, that's an unbelievable appendage to this text. He's saying, though it looks like defeat, though Polycarp was ground into powder, in fact, was burned at the stake by the very efficient killing machinery of Rome. His was the victory, because who was he aligned with? He was aligned with King Jesus, who rules yesterday, today, and forever. For these early Christians, there was nothing more important than the fact of Jesus' eternal reign. It relativized and it put into question the significance of the kingdoms of this world and their actions. And if the early martyrs of the church could say with Philippians 2 that nothing was that was happening around them could shake the eternal kingdom of Christ, that that proconsul would ultimately bow the knee to Jesus, we can say the same with them this morning in this space. With great confidence, the early Christians could say with Psalm 2 that the one enthroned in heaven laughs while the nations rage and plot in vain. And it is not just that they and we also have one enthroned in heaven who scoffs at the plots and the conspiracies of the world's kingdoms. It is the fact that this one who was enthroned in heaven took the form of a servant and made himself nothing and humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, this is something unlike any other king has ever done in history. Jesus made himself like us and served us and placed our well-being above his own. He made himself, as it were, a true friend to us by taking on our humanity and coming alongside of us and living our pain and our weakness and our finitude and our creaturely limitations. He was the truest friend of all to us by being the salvation of God for us, by nailing our sin to the cross with him and thereby defeating its power, its ability to finally control our eternal destinies. Sin no longer defines us as a church. Death no longer threatens us ultimately as a church. All because Jesus, our true friend, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but rather humbled himself And made himself nothing and took the very nature of a servant for us. Now, why have I made this sort of sudden turn and talked about this unstoppable power of Jesus expressing itself in the humility of becoming a friend to us? Why that friendship language? I want to say it's because that's how Paul talks about it here in this passage and throughout the letter of Philippians. The letter of the Philippians is saturated by the language and imagery of friendship from the ancient world, and I want to talk just a little bit about that because it's so very different from the way that we understand friendship today. The letter begins in the opening chapters by talking about the centrality and the profundity of Christ's acts of friendship toward us, but Paul uses this primary friendship that Jesus bears toward us to define the meaning of friendship in the body of Christ, which Christ's sacrifice has made. In other words, the primary friendship that Jesus has with us is the pattern or the paradigm of the friendships that we are meant to have with one another. The ancient world was different in a great many ways from the modern world, but one of the chief ways it was different is that there was no such thing as the nation state. There's a bunch of scholars who've talked about this, Tony Giddens and John Bossi and others. They've argued that the development of the nation-state is the key invention that made us modern and distinguishes us from all pre-modern societies. And one of the chief differences that the nation-state has made is the invention of a permanent police force. There was, of course, the recognized idea of policing or police power in the ancient world, but it was exercised intermittently by soldiers, and it was very often limited to urban areas. So it was therefore an unsafe and an incredibly violent world, as it remains today in many places where the police forces are ineffective or corrupt. It was especially dangerous and violent for women and children. And so in the ancient world, this meant that life was far more fragile and tenuous than we have become accustomed to in the modern world. And that means that people held a lot more value than they do now for two specific kinds of relationships, kinship and friendship. Both these kinds of relationships had very public and political functions that they no longer possess in the modern age. But between these two, the ethical writers of the ancient world preferred friendship because friends friends were like family that you chose for very specific reasons. Almost every writer that talks about friendship in the ancient world says that the the worst possible fate that could befall you was to find yourself friendless. Not because you would then be lonely, though that would be true as well, it's because you would be standing alone and exposed to a violent and tumultuous and unpredictable world. Friendship in the ancient world was demanding and exacting. It wasn't just about mutual affinity or enjoying the same things together. In fact, these things weren't, strictly speaking, necessary for friendships in the ancient world. Aristotle says that the qualities of affinity or mutual enjoyment are basically useless when you're choosing a friend. If you want to choose a friend, Aristotle says, you need to find someone whose pursuit of truth, goodness, and beauty you admire, and then pursue those things together to the degree that your friend becomes, as it were, a second self to you. There are two qualities together that friendship demanded, loyalty to one another and mutual pursuit of the good. And if, we, if you did those two things together, it would ensure that the friendship produced Virtue and ultimately flourishing for both friends. So for these writers, no one could have many friends because you can't have that kind of intensive relationship with that many people. And scholars like Alan Bray and Claudia Rapp have pointed out that in the medieval period, these kinds of friendships were often cemented by an oath and a bond for which there developed liturgies, actually, in the Christian period. Super fascinating. These bonded friendships from a legal perspective represented a whole new development a whole new kind of artificial kinship structure. In fact, they were often called wedded brothers, which is a striking analogy appropriated from the marriage liturgy. But again, these scholars pointed out that these relationships were not sexual in nature. It's just that the intensity of the relationship was such that it had the quality of being wedded to this other person. These oaths were often taken by soldiers who pledged to take care of one another's families or bury one another's bodies in the event they were killed in battle. In fact, godparenthood, especially as it developed in Byzantium, was the most prominent way this kind of friendship bond was expressed. So if you've been asked to be a godparent recently, just take a quick thought about whether or not that's the kind of commitment you want to make to this family. This kind of friendship required mutual sacrifice, seeking the good of the other, and a commitment to loyalty and permanence in the relationship. Can we switch to that next slide? Okay, Here's an icon of St. Peter and Paul embracing one another in in, uh, a bond of friendship. And the way that this icon is designed, I think this is really fascinating. It's designed to be an illustration of this wedded brother imagery, right? These were two men who were committed ultimately to the good of spreading the gospel, spreading the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so their embrace of one another is an expression of that. So this was a, a, a significant commitment in the ancient world. This kind of friendship is something that is difficult for most of us to imagine in our present day, though I suspect all of us secretly long that someone would love us enough to be that kind of friend to us. Paul is telling us in no uncertain terms in chapter 2 of Philippians, that is how Christ has actually loved us. He is our true friend. He has been, as Aristotle says, a second self to us better and closer than a brother, loyal unto death to us. And then he says, like that, be friends to one another. With sacrifice and humility, thinking of others more than yourself. Be a friend as Jesus has been a friend. But here's the critical point. He goes out of his way in the immediate in the passage immediately following to say, do not try to be friends to one another from the well of your own love. That well goes dry so quickly as any of us who've tried to love sacrificially know all too well. We're human, all too human. We do not have this capacity. Instead, what Paul does is he goes mystical on us. He says that if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you have any comfort from his love, if you have any fellowship, and the word here is koinonia, in his spirit, that's the same word that Paul uses for communion in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In other words, if you've been incorporated into the body of Christ, if you belong to Jesus, if you share in what Christ has done for his church, then from the resource of that true friendship, be true friends to one another. This mysticism I want to stress is the most important thing that Paul sets up in this chapter as an ethical command to the Christians in Philippi. He says, if you try to do this from your strength, you will fail. It will be an abominable, abysmal failure that will burn you out and will actually produce the exact opposite effects in your church. It will produce hypocrisy. It will produce pretended love. It will produce the very opposite of the true love which is in Jesus Christ. And that is why he says, have the mind of Christ for one another. Have the love of Christ for one another consistently throughout this letter and throughout all of his letters. He doesn't just say, Jesus did this for you, be like Jesus, imitate Jesus. No, what he's saying is almost something completely the opposite of that. He's saying, you and I don't have the capacity to be friends to one another in this way that Jesus has been friends to us and continues to be a friend to us. All the ancient writers on friendship, Paul says, had a nice vision of what it means to be friends to one another, but not a single one of them could carry it out. They lacked the power, just as you Philippian Christians lack the power. (coughs) Excuse me. The Roman philosopher Epictetus was more honest and self-aware than most of his contemporaries about this. He said of himself, I see the good and I choose the worst. Also in his ethical handbook called the Enchiridion, he writes, if anyone tells you that a certain person speaks ill of you, do not make excuses about what is said of you, but answer this way. He was ignorant of my other faults, else he would not have mentioned these alone. But Paul is saying that what Epictetus said about himself is true for every single one of us. We lack the capacity to love in this way. And therefore, it is necessary to be caught up mystically into the love of Christ so that we have the comfort from his love, common sharing in the spirit, tenderness and compassion from him in order that we may become like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. And what is that common mind and that common love? Say it if you can. I want to hear from you. What is the mind that we share? The mind of Christ. What love do we share? The love of Christ. It is his mind taking shape in us and refreshing our vision. It is his love being formed in our hearts communally and individually, transforming our wills, reshaping our imaginations, helping us reimagine what is possible in this world, what justice would look like, what mercy would look like, what compassion would look like, what friendship would look like that is being formed in us as we embrace and we are absorbed into this mind of Christ, this love of Christ, which is poured into our hearts, shed abroad into our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. Don't you dare try to substitute your own feeble, paltry loves for the love of Christ. That is idolatry. Rather, plunge more deeply into your relationship with Christ and there, from that infinite resource, from that infinitely deep well, love one another and be true friends to one another. And this is a corporate reality first and foremost. This gathering is not unnecessary. This is not an optional add-on to the life of following Jesus. This gathering is essential, my friends. I think the reference that Paul gives here to the fellowship of the Holy Spirit refers to our corporate reception of Jesus in the Eucharist. Now, remember I said the word that Paul uses here, koinonia, is that same word he uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 to describe the reception of Jesus in the communion that we share together. The bond and the fellowship we possess with Jesus is strengthened and deepened as we receive him together in the Eucharist. In this meal, we are really sustained and deepened and transformed and nourished as his body. We have a real participation in him, which allows us, as St. Augustine put it, to become what we see and to receive what we are. But it is also an individual reality. It's not only corporate or merely corporate. It's individual. The way in which we receive the Eucharist together really matters for whether and the degree to which that bond is strengthened in the Eucharist. There's an ethical dimension and a commitment to personal transformation that is required as we come to receive this meal together. We're often told in our Anglican liturgy to examine our conscience before we approach the table of Christ. And that means to ask questions of ourselves, sobering questions. Is there any relationship in this community that demands repair? Repair. Are there relationships between this church and other bodies of believers that need repair? Have we been assiduous in seeking justice in our communities and in our society? As we think about the shooting in Uvalde, have we really committed ourselves to justice everywhere and for everyone in our communities? Or are we... Just thinking, it's over there. I don't have to worry so much about that. As we think about this SBC report today, too, is our own house in order in the ACNA so that we're protecting our most vulnerable members as much as it stands within our own power to do so? We must ask these questions. We must examine our conscience in these ways. All of this is what it means to come to this table with clean hands and pure hearts and discern the Lord's body together. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, If we come to the table having examined ourselves, Christ will send us from this table with power not to be satisfied with the way we are and the way things are in this world. He sends us, he promises to send us with power to be agents of the kingdom, pushing back the darkness, ambassadors of his reconciliation, as Paul says elsewhere in 2 Corinthians, pushing back the darkness in prayer and in action in the spheres of influence that he has given us to serve him in. So our challenge this morning and always is not to try to drum up love for one another in our own strength, but rather to let Christ love us with his undying, forever victorious love to remove every obstacle in us, whether of pride or some other sin that would keep us from receiving that love so that we can turn to love one another with that same love, Having received it from Jesus to the glory of God the Father forever, may we always be a community that's marked by that love. And listen, may we never forget in humility that the love of Christ is the only thing that distinguishes this community from the world. It's not our moral superior, superiority to the world which we cannot claim. It's not our invulnerability to death which we do not yet possess but may we remember that if we love others with the love with with which Jesus has loved us, then the kingdom which no one and nothing can shake will be visible here in this place, in this community. And may we never forget that this love is a matchless gift and privilege and power that is always available for those who ask because Christ is our true friend who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen.